Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so I don't really have a whole lot of things to go over or catch everybody up on, um, except that I did do a really great podcast this week, if I say so myself, about David Miscavige, uh, me and uh, Dr. Jeff Wassell and John P. Capitalist. Uh, that's not his real name, by the way. Uh, all talked about uh, David Miscavige and how he is taking Scientology right over the cliff. And actually, and I've made this observation long time ago before, uh, you know, if you, if you didn't know better, <laughs> you know, there are conspiracy theories out there that David Miscavige was planted in Scientology in order to purposefully destroy it. And if I didn't know better, I would almost imagine such things to be true because he is doing, as the leader of Scientology, such a championship job of destroying it that, you know, it really makes you wonder, right? But, uh, but not really because, you know, the facts are actually the facts of the matter. But uh, the conspiracy theory just practically writes itself on that one. All right. Anyway, I hope you'll listen to the podcast that we did yesterday. It was, uh, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. And um, you will be seeing the three apostates coming back soon. We, uh, today, as I'm sitting here earlier today, we recorded uh, next week's podcast. And I think you guys are going to dig that as well. And I wanted to put out a plug for uh, Patreon. Um, I do this every now and again. I hope you guys don't get sick and tired of me doing it. But I kind of have to because you guys are the ones who support me to be able to do what I do here. And I've got a lot lined up that I want to get done. You guys have heard about a lot of it. You haven't heard about all of it. Um, and in order to do that, I need your support. That's really what it comes down to because you guys are the ones who allow me to be able to do this full time. So if you like my channel and you enjoy what I'm doing and you're entertained, informed, and educated by my channel, then consider signing up on Patreon. The link is below. Uh, I think there's also uh, a link above in one of the corners here on the screen. And, um, and it's not hard to find my Patreon page. And, uh, or also, of course, you can do a one-time donation to the channel as well. Everything is appreciated. Everything is wonderful uh, that you guys do to support this channel and keep me afloat. So I just wanted to put that plug in there because um, I, I kind of need to do those sometimes. So let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Marcus Aurelius. Sometimes it occurs to me as if the criticism of destructive cults was mainly introduced by concerned parents, especially in the 1970s and 80s. Do we have to consider the possibility that some points of cult criticism are in reality the maintenance of questionable societal norms and potentially the symptom of a new generation, becoming more and more independent, colliding with the traditions and values of the previous generation, and which is frightened about changes in society and a subjective feeling of alienation to their children? Maybe scapegoating cults, considering them as having a somehow indecent influence on the youth. For instance, parents of young members of the Rajneesh Bhagwan cult were often concerned because of the group's progressive mindset concerning sexuality. How is it possible to differ between appropriate cult criticism and undifferentiated maintenance of traditional family ideals and societal structures? Don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely convinced that there are destructive cults using dangerous and psychologically harmful techniques of control, manipulation, thought-stopping, and hypnosis. 
but how can we tell the difference between a benign, socially progressive group and a destructive cult? Okay, that's a good question. And uh, because in the 1970s and 80s, there were cult scares and there was an actual uh, kind of plague within law enforcement communities and across the uh, Christian right channels, you know, 700 Club and stuff about Dungeons and Dragons and about demonic cults. And these were blown entirely, like way out of proportion. I mean, to this day, I have people reference me to this stuff and I'm just like, man, you need a little history lesson in how exaggerated things became during that time period. And there was kind of a cult craze. So uh, that, was a, that was rough, because, and also, of course, at the time, there were not um, techniques laid out on how to get people out of those kind of situations constructively either. Uh, there was deprogramming going on, which was basically kidnapping someone and engaging in more mind control techniques and thought-stopping techniques and you know, heavy indoctrination techniques on the person in order to get them out of the cult. That's no good. That hardly ever worked. And it brought a really bad name on a lot of people. And families were very desperate. And there was, you know, there was a lot of scare tactics being used on all sides, uh, you know, talking about the influence of these things. And it turned out that, you know, some of this was generated by parents, especially uh, Christian parents, unfortunately, who went a little, ah, you know, about the Satan cults and stuff when, in fact, you know, the person wasn't necessarily involved in Satanic cults or rituals at all. Uh, it, they thought Scientology was Satanic. They thought Dungeons and Dragons was Satanic. They thought, you know, anything that wasn't what they were doing was Satanic. And it, it got pretty crazy. So, uh, so that's kind of where this question's coming from, and I understand that. So now, we have an increased awareness of what cults, destructive cults are, and we have a better understanding of how to deal with people who get involved in destructive cults and how to do interventions, not, you know, interrogations or kidnappings, but, you know, you can stage a constructive intervention that consults and gets the person's willingness to be part of the process in order to get them out of that situation. And there's no part of those processes anymore, those, those uh, you know, intervention things, at least not that I'm aware of, that involve any kind of, you know, anything like the rigors that were involved in the 70s and 80s. So, in order to differentiate as far as what are you dealing with, well, there's a checklist. It's got, I think, about 12 or 13 points or something on it, maybe more. Uh, that was put together by uh, Yanya Lalich and Michael Angioni. And this checklist is on my website, uh, which is linked below, mncriticalthinking.com. And there's a whole page, which is just, you know, the, the cult checklist. And that is, a, that is not a, okay, check each point off, okay, we've got ourselves a cult. You have to use it with some knowledge and some skill. Uh, which means you have to thoroughly investigate the group in question. You can't, very rarely do you just look at a group and go, oh, destructive cult. You know, you got to do some research. You got to figure out, are they or aren't they, right? I mean, some people have said um, that the Boy Scouts are a cult, you know, so that every, so, you know, there's some people who assert to me on this channel that every religion is a cult or a destructive cult. And I go, no, that's just not, that's not how it is. So you have to look at the group specifically that you're looking at, not, not the necessarily the big broad group, because if you looked at you know, Christianity, let's say, or Buddhism, let's say, well, that's not going to 
necessarily get you a precise answer for the subgroup, the sub-subgroup that the person's involved in at the local guru house in, you know, Encino, California, right? Like, you need to get that group looked at. What are they doing? And it's not the belief system. You want to look at actions. You want to look at what they're doing. And you especially want to look at the relationship between the leadership and the followers. How do the followers talk about the leader? How does the leader talk about his followers? How are there, you know, what, are there any secret things going on in this group? If so, why are they secret? You know, how are, how are people, you know, indoctrinated? Can you look at the scriptures or look at the um, writings? You know, if it's not a religious group, it, you know, can you look at the materials? Can you look at what they're doing? Um, are they open? Are they transparent? Or are they closed off and a little, a little suspicious of outsiders? You know, like I said, there's a whole list of things that you could um, look for as far as characteristics. And you have to take each group individually and just run it down that way. There's no substitute for the understanding and ability to do that. Uh, otherwise, you get really stupid stuff like, the, you know, the Boy Scouts are a cult, you know, and stuff like that, which is just not, a, a, no. <laughs> Sorry, guys, no. <laughs> so, anyway, I hope that answers the question. If you have, if there's anything about the checklist itself, um, or anything else about this question that you felt I didn't quite get, go ahead and let me know, but otherwise I, I hope that helps. El Bunchio. In an interview with Jeff Augustine, John Atak talked about the theft of the OT materials pack from Copenhagen. How many copies of each OT materials packs would a class 5 slash ideal org have? What are your recollections of the time when the materials were stolen? Did you hear about it or was it hushed up? Did you notice security tightened? Okay, so those materials were stolen from Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen in the 1980s uh, when I was still uh, going to high school and uh, hadn't even joined staff yet. I think I was barely into Scientology and it was not broadcast throughout Scientology that, you know, oh my God, oh, somebody came in and pretended to be a Sea Org member. Two guys went into uh, the advanced organization in, in uh, Denmark and they dressed in their Sea Org uniforms that they had kept. They were ex-Sea Org members. And they went in there and made like they were there on a mission to collect the OT materials and take them. And they, and they got given them. They, they gave them over. They put them all in a briefcase and they walked out. And it was that easy. And it was like, whoa. Um, now, obviously, it wasn't you know, an, an easy thing to do because you had to know all the Sea Org jargon and Scientology lingo and, you had to, and they had to conduct themselves like an actual Sea Org mission. So that would require some, some training, some background. But anyway, that was, that was how that was pulled off. Um, I, what I, the only thing I ever heard about in regards to non, you know, the, the breaking confidentiality of the OT materials when I was in the church was we heard about how some of the OT materials had been entered into the court record. And I think this was also over in, in uh, England or, or, I'm sorry, in Europe, probably in Copenhagen. And, um, and they had to set up a schedule of uh, OTs to go to the library, the law library or public library where the records of this court case were accessible. And they had to check them out and keep them on a rotation so no one else could get in there and check out those OT materials. And they just sat in the library with them all day and they'd do like a day, you know, rotation shift or something. And I think they had five or six or seven OTs, you know, willing to do this who had the time to do it. So that was the only thing I ever heard of.
Um, and we was told, of course, you know, as God, this is so stupid and ridiculous and these stupid wogs, why aren't they, you know, why, why don't they just leave us alone and grant us our religious freedom and, you know, confidentiality. So, um, to, now the other parts of your question, though, I wanted to make sure uh, I got to because OT materials are not kept at class five orgs or in ideal orgs. The OT materials are only kept at advanced organizations. And that, that is a, that's a high-level organization. It's a C org org, sorry, C organization only organization, right? Only C org members work there. And um, they're entrusted with uh, securing those OT materials and making sure they don't get out, which of course they failed miserably at because it's all over the internet now. But that was their trust and they 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 blew it. So I believe there have been some revisions and changes to the OT material since the ones that are out on the internet. And, you know, you hear this and you hear that and you read this and read that and you can put it all together. But, um, but that's it not, not huge significant changes. I mean, I'm not talking about that they changed Xenu or something like that. But for example, there have been three different versions reportedly of OT8. So, you know, it's a little hard to say for sure exactly precisely what people are reading in the church right now. But we do know that Xenu ain't going anywhere. So uh, anyway, so they're not at city level churches. Uh, you can't walk into those places and walk out with the OT materials. They're, they're not there. The highest confidential material they have is the material about clear, the, the state of clear, because there's a confidential, little tiny snippet of confidential information connected with the state of clear that that's given out to all the orgs. And that piece of information, by the way, is, the, is called the clear cognition or the, the thing you're supposed to realize when you achieve the state of clear. And that realization is, uh, oh, I just realized I've been the one mocking up or creating my reactive mind. It hasn't, you know, you have this reactive mind and you're the one who's been making it be there the whole time. And when you have that realization, snap, you're not supposed to have it anymore. And I uh, just saved you a few thousand dollars. So <laughs> all the more reason to sign up on Patreon. <laughs> all right. I hope that, uh, hope that answers your question. Dave Turner. I was surprised by your explanation about suppressive, antisocial, psychotic people just pretending to be clear and OT and acting like they got gains. What about the e-meter? According to Scientology promotional material, the e-meter always tells the truth and can easily spot a lie. I quote from an official site, it is a religious artifact used as a spiritual guide to help the pre-clear locate and confront areas of spiritual upset. It is an electronic instrument that measures mental state and change of state in individuals and assists the precision and speed of auditing. The needle reactions on the e-meter tell the auditor where the charge lies and that it should be addressed through auditing. Either people can fool the e-meter or they can't. If they can, what does this say about Dianetics and Scientology auditing? Great question, and um, it's almost a gotcha. Except Hubbard figured his way around this. Now, uh, in Scientology, there's a, there's a faith-based belief, because it's completely unwarranted by any facts or evidence, that the e-meter registers mental mass connected to incidents of pain and stress and trauma that are in your past. And that that mass actually creates resistance in the body. And the electric flow that's going through the body from the holding the cans of the e-meter, that, that, there's an electric flow going. It goes through the skin. 
and um, and also it's mostly in the hands. Okay, it mostly goes in you know in one and out the other sort of thing. So uh, so it's not measuring your heart rate. It's not it's not going. The electric signal isn't pushing its way through muscle mass. It's all it's all just at the level of the skin. Okay. Now, various things affect the skin, and I'm not going to do a whole rundown on this right now because I've got a whole video on this that's going to come, and I know I've been teasing it for way too long, but I'm just going to tell you right now that I'm not going to tell you all about this, but I'll tell you enough, which is that the, um, the resistance comes from the skin, and the Scientology idea is that this mental mass gets on your body, like literally when you're, when you're creating it or, or what they call mocking it up in Scientology, when you're remembering or recalling or re-stimulating these incidents, uh, I'm always making this motion because I'm talking about this mass right here that's moving in on you. And that mass is supposed to, supposed to change your body's resistance to the electric flow and that's what causes the needle uh, to move on the dial of the e-meter. That's the Scientology idea. That's not what's actually going on, but that's what they think is going on. And so they believe that the meter is, re is, a, is a reading at a subconscious level, that you can't affect it with your analytical thoughts. That's not true, but that's what they say. That's what they think. And so, um, so they believe very much that the e-meter is a, is a good lie detector, that it, that it works 100% of the time and that there's no exceptions to it except this. Helen Hubbard said that the e-meter does not work on criminals. So, if you're a criminal, now because the, because the, one of the one of the ideas with the meter is that you are there and the auditor is there, you know, behind the meter to you're both there willingly. You're both there for the same purpose. You're there for the purpose of of getting a therapeutic result from the auditing. You're, you're there to do, you know, to contribute to and be active in and participate in the auditing process. So it's not a, you know, okay, do the auditing to me now, you know, show me that it works. They're not, if you come in there with that kind of attitude, they're going to show you the door because you're going to be called a source of trouble because you're there to make trouble. You're not there to participate and be part of the process. Criminals have things to hide. They have, they have, you know, uh, carried out criminal acts. They're withholding those acts. They're, they, they can't let go of them. They, they, so to the degree that they are unwilling to communicate and that they're unwilling to talk about what they've done and tell you their criminal activities, to that degree, the meter is impeded because the person's not there actively participating in the auditing session. Even if the criminal is supposed, you know, is telling himself that he's there to be part of it and he wants to be part of it, he knows that he's got stuff he can't tell and isn't telling and isn't going to, as they say in Scientology, he's not willing to be responsible for what he's done. He's a grossly irresponsible person. That's what makes him a criminal. So that irresponsibility stretches out to everything that he's ever done and nothing's going to read on the meter. There's nothing, they're not going to get any result. Criminals are supposed to be solid, bleh, beefy, you know, like they're just like, bleh, they got all this mental mass from like, you know, billions and billions of incidents uh, of, uh, of, of bad things that have happened to them in the past. And they're all sitting on their head, you know, that's why another reason why they're criminals. And so, um, so the meter is just, you know, usually it's just kind of stuck or it doesn't move that much. 
that you know it's hard to read through it's hard to get reactions and responses this is theoretically what's supposed to happen according to Scientology materials now okay I'm not telling you that I've put a criminal on the e-meter and seen this I'm telling you what L. Ron Hubbard said okay so um, so that's why the, that's why somebody could theoretically come in, somehow wiggle their way through processing, get enough reactions or maybe even fake the reactions. You know, you can squeeze the cans and you can lift a finger on and off the cans. You can do very subtle things with the cans in a session. You could rub the can on a gar you know, on, a, on your shirt or on a, your pants or something. You can get some pretty interesting reactions on the meter. And if you, sometimes you can move your feet you know, you could rub your feet on the floor. I mean, there's all kinds of little things you can do that can create different reactions on the needle. And so a criminal might be so inclined to do something like that, to fake his way up the bridge, and that is what Scientologists tell themselves. Now, that, again, that's not what happened with me, Mike Rinder, Karen Del Carriere, you know, every ex-Scientologist you've ever seen made an honest effort to be a Scientologist and participate in what was going on. They're not all a bunch of criminals. But this is what Scientology has labeled them now because they've gone anti-Scientology. Uh, and of course they went anti-Scientology because Scientology victimized them and made, the, made it out that it was all their fault, which was not true either. So there's all kinds of, you know, nonsense uh, that Scientology's um, sort of creating around this e-meter and around the whole process of moving up this bridge to total freedom. And these are just some of the complications and, and nonsense you can get involved in with this. So I hope that gives you a better idea of how somebody could be a criminal and still make it up to OT in Scientology's eyes. You know, it's all, it's all a farce anyway because the whole thing's a bit of a fraud. And believe me when I tell you that that e-meter has nothing to do with, with reading mental mass. Bengt Olsen. You say that the reason Scientology is building so-called ideal orgs is that they have to. They can't just hoard money because they are tax-exempt. So they build new orgs that are basically empty buildings and brag about how they are expanding. But in a video on YouTube, you also say that ideal orgs are paid and renovated by local Scientologists and that they rent the building they bought and renovated from the mother church. If this is true, then Scientology seems to be doing what you said they can't do, hoarding money. Which statement is true? Both? Okay, well first to correct one point, I never said or I don't believe that I've said that they charge rent. Uh, when an ideal org is purchased and then renovated by Scientology International, um, it's basically given over to the local church. I mean, that's their building now. And they don't have to pay rent. And that was one of the points of doing this was that most of the money that these local churches were making pre-ideal org was going to their rent or going to their mortgage payment or going to their lease payment because they were renting the facility, right? Uh, so that's where the money was going and it wasn't going to international management who wanted their money. So this ideal org program was let's invest some money down and then we can be making more money up. At least as far as contribution goes from the, the city level class 5 orgs, these ideal orgs. Alright, now as far as um, the hoarding money thing goes, um, the Church of Scientology International has paid for some of these ideal orgs. They haven't, all, not every one of these orgs, and especially as the years have rolled on here, not all of them have been paid for by the local parishioners, the local church staff or, or Scientologists, let's say in, you know, Keokuk. Um, Keokuk, 
you know, w wasn't making it. I'll, okay, a real example, Valley Organization, like that great big monstrosity of a building in San Fernando Valley. They were working on that thing for over 10 years and they hadn't gotten it paid for or renovated. So money probably came down from, because suddenly it was done. So money probably came down from Scientology International in order to get that done. Uh, same with Kaohsiung in um, uh, Taiwan. And uh, I, th I think I got that right. <laughs> I know it's called Kaohsiung. And um, I know also the one in Ireland that they just opened up. That was funded by Church of Scientology International. So they are spending money out of their reserves in order to build some of these ideal org buildings. They've also got the L. Ron Hubbard uh, houses that they have purchased and maintain all over the world. Every place Hubbard lived, they've been buying up the property and renovating and making it a little uh, L. Ron Hubbard museum. That's all been funded by Church of Scientology International. And of course, they just bought the Scientology Media Productions facility. And that they did some fundraising for that. For sure, they fundraised from local Scientologists, but they, you know, I think when the rubber met the road, they were probably spending a little bit more on that. Um, I, though I can't really be sure. They could have actually made money on that too. And this is the next part I'm going to go into, which is uh, for years they did do local fundraising. And so that money that, was, that came up from the fundraising went to Church of Scientology International. And some of that money went back down to pay for the building and then pay for the renovations for that building. So the church was getting money and spending money. And I believe that most of these orgs were overcharged for the renovations that were done by Scientology internationally. And so the church ended up making more money than they spent on those local city churches, if that makes sense. Um, but they still can show the IRS that they're investing money down into these churches. And so they get the best of both worlds, so to speak, on that, right? Um, so that's how I think all that works. I hope that answers your question. If there's anything that's not clear about what I said, just let me know, but I, I hope that does it. Caitlin Trujian, I really appreciate the amount of effort you put into researching different topics, as well as your critical analysis of them. That being said, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on remote viewing, including its validity, the CIA's research called Project Stargate, and any connection to Scientology it may have through one of the first remote viewers named Ingo Swan. Okay, so I don't know a whole lot about this, but what I can, I'll tell you first my viewpoint about it, uh, about remote viewing, and that is I think, it's, I think it's nonsense. I don't think there's any validity to it at all. Um, I don't think we have spiritual selves or astral projection or a third eye or however you want to describe it to see things. Uh, I think it's called clairvoyance uh, when you are seeing something far away. Anyway, I don't think that that's a real thing. And, uh, and, and so the CIA probably did this, this project to investigate that. In fact, we know they did. And uh, Ingo Swan definitely was a Scientologist. He wasn't OT, and he participated in that, and that's actually all I know about it. I've never done a deep dive into who was Ingo Swan and why was he involved with those researches, except that the 70s were big time interested in um, telekinesis, tele telepathic stuff. You know, this is MK Ultra from the... the um, 50s, 60s, 70s, I think, is when that was going on, if I have that right, definitely in the 60s. And, um, and there was a lot of public interest in this stuff. Um, remember that old Leonard Nimoy show, In Search Of, uh, which they're bringing back, by the way? <laughs> 
um, you know, which was just Woo Central. I mean, it was just it was just this TV show that just dived into all these mysteries uh, that had never been solved. You know, the this was when the Bermuda Triangle got really big. I remember because I was a kid and I was all wide-eyed about all the stuff I'd see on TV and read in books about all this paranormal psycho, you know, parapsychology. Uh, stuff and I, I you know when I was a kid I was like oh yeah I'd love to be a parapsychologist or a paranormal researcher or something that'd be awesome you know look into all this stuff well <laughs> I went the Scientology route and uh, we see where that got me and you saw my video recently about Scientology superpowers so uh, you can you, you can see that I have a, a fairly dim view about people making claims that they can't back up with any evidence or proof. And so far, I have yet to see any real uh, evidence or proof uh, in any tangible form of any remote viewing being actually accurate uh, to a percentage, you know, a statistically relevant percentage. Uh, let's put it that way. So that's my view on that, and I hope I'm not poo-pooing it too much. Uh, because I think it's all kind of, you know, good fun in, from a certain point of view. Um, but from another, I think that people get way too serious about some of it sometimes. And that's never good for anybody, so. Flash. Ah. It is time for Flash Answers. Lynn Lantham. Last month, my daughter, sister, and niece were in Clearwater for a wedding and decided to drive downtown to gawk at the Scientologists. After a while of taking pictures and getting their eyes full, they realized they were being followed by a big white van with dark windows. They got kind of freaked out and said they had the feeling that they were being run out of town. We all laughed and said that because my niece was driving, they would have her tag number and start pounding her with mail. Lo and behold, the day she got back to Atlanta, she got a pamphlet from Scientology about their TV channel. Her next door neighbor also got something from them, but I think it was generated from her being in Clearwater. Do you think it was coincidence or related to her sightseeing and picture taking in Clearwater? Thanks. I do not believe that that was a coincidence. I absolutely do not think that at all. I think that they definitely used the license plate number to track down where she was and send her mail and probably and to her neighbors as well, purely for intimidation purposes. I think it's pretty stupid, um, and I've obviously it shouldn't, you know, don't freak out at all. You have nothing to worry about, but uh, yeah, pretty lame. Kazuka. In one of Marty Rathbun's books, he claims that the church had him change his name from Mark to Marty. He implied that this was a standard practice at the time. I haven't heard about this from any other source. Could you tell us anything you know about it? Thank you, Chris. Well, sure, but everything I know about it is pretty much from Marty's book and people I've talked to about it since. And the idea was that uh, at that time and in that place where Los Angeles in the, in the late 1970s, L. Ron Hubbard was in hiding and seclusion and anybody who was going to the international base that had just been established had to have some kind of cover name or cover identity. And so that's why he chose uh, Marty when his name was Mark. It just kind of fit and it was not his name, so they were able to use it. And I think other people did the same thing if they were gonna you know, have any uh, possibility of needing to use a cover name for any reason. And that all had to do with security of the international base and, and its location and anything having to do with L. Ron Hubbard at the time. Chris, is it true that Sea Org and many other Scientology employees have no health care, and we, the taxpaying WOGs, are paying for their health care through Medicaid? 
Also, does Scientology or are Scientologists encouraged to take advantage of any other government freebies besides tax exemption so DM can keep more money? Yes, it's true that Sea Org members use the dole or public welfare or whatever social services they can apply for and get in order to pay for their medical bills. Scientology very, very rarely will approve enough money to cover somebody's surgery or cancer treatment or something like that unless it's really down to the last minute and the person's valuable and they can't find any other resource to use in order to cover the person's medical expenses. It's, it's pretty gross. It's kind of as bad as, as it sounds. And um, as far as other regular Scientologists, no, the tax exemption is the big thing. And uh, regular public Scientologists are, you know, pay for their medical through their health care or through their insurance or, you know, any other way. I'm talking specifically about the Sea Org when I was talking about how those uh, uh, payments, you know, through the dole, through the public welfare were, were set up. Okay, so that is our show for today. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to what I had to say. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the, the comment section below there, and I will see all of them eventually. Thanks again, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.